Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, bringing you another uh, hour of podcasting power here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. This week, we welcome back uh, in this ongoing series of uh, deep, deep dives, shallow dives, whatever dives, into the topic of neuroscience. I am joined by Dr. Jonas Kaplan, a cognitive neuroscientist at the USC Medical Center. Do I have that right? Research Center? Pretty close. So I'm actually not at the USC Medical Center. I'm at the USC Psychology Department, which is not part of the Medical Center. But uh, that's, you know, as a scientist, I have to be a stickler about everything. So totally. Well, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be back, Chris. Excellent. Thank you. I'm glad to have you back. I, I, I got to tell you, I'm still like, so excited to have you as a as a recurring guest on the show to talk about this stuff. Because I just can't get enough of this subject. I just find it personally fascinating. Maybe because my background had a lot of spiritual explanations for thought and um, life and how we navigate it and all of that. And now that I've kind of found those answers dissatisfying, to say the least, I'm, I'm, I'm craving knowledge on this topic because this is like actual peer-reviewed, confirmed, inf- you know, wildly fascinating information. And in many ways is out on the cutting or even bleeding edge of where we're trying to go with psychology and even sociology. And ultimately, I think neurology is going to have everything to do with the advancements that we need to make in those fields. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think that the motivation to understand ourselves is strong and motivates a lot of spiritual inquiry and also motivates science. I mean, that's why I'm into it myself is because I want to understand myself and the way that I work. And neuroscience is all about um, us. It's all about how we think the way we do and why why we are the way we are. And to me, that's the biggest mystery worth looking into. Big time. I could not agree more. Um, well, let's explore a little bit. Now, I wanted to actually ask first, though, because I and I probably should have done this in our first episode, but I wanted to find out from you, you know, education background, they give they, they have it has a lot to do with our worldview, how we how we see the world and how we navigate through it. And I kind of wonder, you know, neuros becoming a neuroscientist is not an easy thing to do. I actually considered doing it at one point, and then I saw the lineup, and I was like, oh, my God, are you, you know? But with all that you've learned and, and, and going down this research trail now and getting deep into how people think and why they think the way they do and stuff, how has this affected you at a personal level and how you get around in the world and how you see news and events and things that people respond to? How, how does... How does your background in education change your views? That's a a really interesting question. I mean, it changes everything because um, in neuroscience, you're constantly analyzing and taking apart your own thought processes and the way that you work and the way that everybody else works. And it's like life is this constant experiment that you get to see unfolding around you, right? We study the way social relationships work, and we're also in social relationships. We study the way, um, you know, I study the way people change their minds and the way people consume information. And we're constantly seeing this unfold in in new and interesting ways in the world. You know, right now with the coronavirus pandemic going on, we're seeing a lot of interesting phenomena in terms of how people 
decide what's true about this virus and what isn't true. And a lot of the sort of social phenomenon uh, that, that push people to believe one way or another are exactly the kinds of things that we've been studying at the level of the brain. And so it's sort of in, inescapable um, that when you're studying life and psychology, you're, you're also embedded in life and psychology. And so it definitely changes the way you look at things. I'll bet. I used to look at everything, of course, through a lens of Scientology. And I explained everything that way. But now I'm, I, I look at it through a completely different lens of, of social pressures, biases, cognitive fallacies, you know, the, the illogics, the things we are struggling to try to do. And, and the sort of, I, 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 I don't want to be too pessimistic about this. You know, I, I try to be optimistic. I really do. Um, but the, the, the struggle with our so-called rationality you know, the sort of myth that there's a rational brain and an animal brain and this idea that we're, that there's this adversarial relationship between them or something. I, I just doesn't really, it's a, it's an, it's a nice framing, but it's not really what's going on there. It, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are, um, we are sometimes rational. It, it also depends on how you conceive of rationality. I tend to have a sort of wide view of rationality mm -hmm. in that a lot of the things that the brain does that aren't normally considered rational really are rational. So for example, emotions. Um, emotions are um, a very um, effective system for, for keeping us alive. And they convey to our conscious minds lots of important information that we need to take into account in our decision-making. So it's not that in order to be rational, you have to suppress emotions. I, mean, I, I do think you have to incorporate emotions in a systematic way into your decision-making process, but completely eliminating emotion from the equation does not make you more rational, for example. Right? Exactly. So how we conceive of rationality probably needs to change a little bit, and we'd have a broader view of that. That's a great point, and that's, that's probably something we'll return to as we go through this. Um, because classically, I mean, classic philosophy and, and you know, up to the Enlightenment, it, well, actually, hell, even all the way up to Star Trek was the push-pull of rationality versus emotion, right? It was represented by the, you know, the sort of trinity of, of Star Trek, right, with, with uh, Kirk's box. Star Trek did, did a pretty good, pretty good job in this because their emotionless characters um, weren't um, portrayed as the end goal, right? They had their own problems for being completely um, emotionless. So Data was constantly trying to get emotion in his life to become more human, right? Right. And and Spock um, sort of uh, had the consequences of, of suppressing his emotions bubble up from time to time. So right. it was actually a sort of sophisticated view of it there. Actually, very true. Very true. Good point. Um, okay, well, let's go ahead and get into a couple questions I have for this show. We talked about anatomy. We talked about the fact that neurons exist, that there's action potentials, this kind of stuff in the last uh, show. Tried to sort of give some basics of how, of what's kind of mechanically going on up here, you know, an inch behind our foreheads. And I had... Um, I had another question about, you know, because I'm reading other stuff too, and there seems to be some conjecture or idea maybe that um, glia, which we understand, it, which is I, what, Latin for glue, like it's this, right. it's this substance that um, it, it creates the myelin sheathing that the neurons go through. Uh, the nervous system is, you know, is sort of glued together with this stuff, which is, I think, where it gets its name from. Um, 
Yet there's some conjecture that perhaps it's not just this sort of glue, that there might be more to it, uh, that it might actually be part of the cognitive process, even though it's not, as I understand it, the definition of glia is um, that do not, it does not produce electrical impulses, maintains homeostasis, forms myelin, and provides support and protection for neurons, is, is the Wikipedia breakdown of it. But conjecture-wise, or moving forward research-wise, have you heard anything more or, 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 or know anything more about this as far as how it might contribute to? Yeah, the, so I guess I have a couple comments on that. Yeah. First of all, I'm not a, um, um, uh, the kind of neuroscience I do doesn't, uh, I'm gonna, doesn't work on the cellular level, so I'm not up on the latest um, information on this. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, the first point I would note is that even if the only functions of glia are the ones you described from the Wikipedia page there, um, that's an important role that they have in information <laughs> processing, right? So it's like you, you, your, your car can't work without uh, the cooling system and without the electrical systems, you know, the, the pistons are not the only part of the engine. So all of, all of these uh, cells work together to produce the system that we have, and you really can't have one part of the system without the other. So for example, the glial cells in providing the function of myelin, just sheathing the neurons, um, they greatly affect the conductance of the neural signals by doing that. And you have degenerative diseases where the myelin starts to degenerate, you have tremendous problems with the system, right? You have motor disorders and thought disorders that they come just from destruction of, of myelin. Those are not the neurons themselves that are dying, but the glia that are dying, the glia that help to provide the insulation for those, for those neurons. So even if the functions are just the basic ones that we know the glia do, that's a pretty big role and they shouldn't be dismissed. Um, but I think you're right, there is some newer work that it's possible the glia may do even more than we previously thought, and they may be involved in um, some kind of signal sending uh, amongst the astrocytes, for example. But again, that's not a, it's not a field of research that I follow very closely. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, I, I, I appreciate you going out and, and describing that much on it, at least, because um, we're, I, I wanted to just sort of point out with that little bit that... Um, there's still so much we are learning about this. You know, I really want to stress that kind of almost every episode of like, look, we are just at the at the beginning of really getting this stuff figured out. And it's not to invalidate anybody's work. It's to look at like how big of a problem it actually is that we're trying to solve and all the elements of it. I mean, there's glia itself is uh, it, three or four different kinds of cells. It's not even itself just a single substance. So and we don't even know, like we talked about last time, there's still neurotransmitters we're figuring out and naming, and there's still all kinds of stuff going on up here. So really, we're sort of, you know, bathing in the excitement of discovery still. <laughs> with a lot of yeah, you, you really can't stress that enough when it comes to understanding the brain, that it, it, or understanding changes from year to year, uh, sometimes from month to month. It's a rapidly evolving field of knowledge, and that is what makes it exciting. Big time. Big time. Well, I have a very simple question. And I thought I thought <laughs> I, I thought if by the end of this episode we could we could kind of walk through some things and maybe talk about or get to what we do know about this or what we're sort of thinking how this works. I wanted to get it across to layman, right? This sort of explain it like I'm five thing. And that being okay. 
if we're going to think about the brain and the neurons of the brain operating on these impulses, these pulses, you know, it's like kind of a sort of analogous to a binary system in that it's on off, it fires or it doesn't. Um, and we analogize that to computers and we understand that computers are basically plastic and metal circuit boards that electrons flow on through pre-patterned pathways that we've built, engineers figured out, so that we could have a system that would allow the free flow of electrons in a predictable way so we could create words on a screen, words printed on a piece of paper, et cetera. There's very established functions that go on here. And we just play with those functions in endless numbers of combinations and we get all the various things that we get on the internet and on computers. It really all comes from zeros and ones. At the, bottom, at the end of the day, it's all zeros and ones. So at the end of the day, neurons are firing up here. But how does that translate into our experience of thought and consciousness? And I know that's the million dollar question. So I know we're not <laughs> gonna get the answer, quote unquote, but let's talk about what we're figuring out with that and what, and, and what you're doing. Yes, I mean, I do think that that is possibly the deepest question in the universe, and that is why I've devoted my life to studying it as well. Um, but yeah, we don't have the answer. We're not going to come to it within now, but maybe we can, maybe we can make our, our thinking about it more sophisticated is, is one way to look at it. Right. Um, and I think that you know, one way to think this through and one way to pose the question is to ask, you know, how is it possible? How can you represent information about the world? with a series of cells that are sending each other electrical impulses. And I can give you some examples of some ways that the brain does that that might give you a foothold there. That you know, there, there are some clear things we know about how the brain represents the world um, where we have a pretty good understanding of them and they make sense and I think gives you the idea that you can then extrapolate to other situations. And most of these examples come from sensory systems in the brain. So these are the easiest things to understand. How do we see the world? How do we interpret the visual world around us? How do we uh, feel touch on our body? You know, how do we hear? These are ways in which the brain extracts information about what's out there and keeps it in our mind in the firing of these neurons, right? So when we're uh, looking at something, uh, there's light out there in the world and it's creating patterns of firing in our neurons. And somehow those patterns of firing have information about what it is that we're looking at. How is that possible? Let me give you a couple of examples. One of, the, one of the principles of how the brain represents information about the world is that it tends to use maps. Maps are a really convenient way of representing different kinds of information. So one of these maps that we have in the brain is in the system for touch and the systems for movement. And these maps were discovered um, through brain stimulation experiments. Uh, they're mapped out really precisely in humans by a guy named Wilder Penfield, who was doing neurosurgeries. And when you do neurosurgery, you have the person's brain exposed. And you know there are no pain receptors in the brain, because your brain isn't built to have neurosurgeons poking around in it. There was <laughs> no reason for evolution to give us those pain receptors until now. And so now you have a Canadian neuroscientist like Wilder Penfield poking around in the brain. And one of the things you can do when you have the brain exposed is to put a little current in there, like you know, just run some electricity through a little cable and see what happens in the person's mind. The person's lying there and they can tell you, oh, I, I felt my finger tingling when you did that. And then you kind of move the needle a little bit somewhere else and we'll say, oh, I felt the tingling in my elbow. 
And so it turns out there's this strip of the cerebral cortex, the very particular anatomical location. It's called the pre-central, the, the post-central gyrus. And when you stimulate in different areas of the post-central gyrus, the person will feel it in different parts of the body. They will feel sensations. Because the firing of neuron, neurons in that particular part of the cortex represents to the brain a touch in a particular location in the body. And there is a map. There's a map of the body that is right along this little ridge of cortex. It's a very precise map. It's like you could draw out a little person on, on the brain. Really? Yeah. So it really looks like the person's body laid out there. It's laid out in a funny way, so it's not like how you would draw it if you were drawing a stick figure, but you can look up pictures of this on the internet. It's called the homunculus, which means little man in Latin. Huh. And there's a picture of this this, uh, this little gnome of a, of a guy, and he looks weird because different parts of the body have uh, more real estate in the brain devoted to them based on how sensitive they are. So for example, the lips are very sensitive and they take up a big portion of the brain, much bigger than they take up on the body. And so you can see this this uh, sensory homunculus guy. He's got kind of big hands and big lips. Yeah, because look at, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because uh, those are the parts that are more sensitive. Endings are hands, feet, lips. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And the nerves that carry information from the hands will carry that information to this particular spot in the postcentral gyrus. And then when there's activity there, if you're, say, a person looking at the brain activity, we can do this with, with brain imaging now. If you see uh, an activation right there, you know the person is feeling something on that part of their body. And so we've confirmed this with brain imaging that these maps are there. And we can actually, these maps are so precise that we can decode them. With brain imaging. We could take a look at the brain images and we can say, okay, this, this person was being touched in the hand or, or in the face. Wow. Is this, uh, I, I'm just going to ask stupid questions as they occur to me as we go along, just because I like that. Is this part of the reason why if you were to lose a limb, you'd still feel a sensation there from time to time? Because you can still fire off in those areas of the brain, even though there ain't nothing there. Because that's how it's right. always feeling the feeling in the first place is it was coming from up here. That's exactly right. So the, the activity of those neurons that are devoted to that part of the body can still fire. And they can sometimes fire when an adjacent part of the body, part of uh, when the neurons that are mapped to the adjacent part of the cortex are stimulated. Right. Um, so, for example, the face and the, 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 the arm might be next to each other. And so a lot of people who lose their arm will, will feel that touch when you touch their a kind of a remapping process. So these maps are one of the ways of organizing information and using these neural signals to represent something about the world. In this case, it's representing something about the body, right? But if you look at the visual system, it's a very similar setup where there are neurons in the retina, in the back of the eye, that are constantly receiving information from different parts of the world. So for example, the right side of your right eye is getting the light that comes from the left side of the world just the way the optics are set up. And so those neurons are getting information from that part of what you're looking at. And those things are mapped to very particular maps in the visual cortex in the brain. The visual cortex is in the very back of the head. I always and, thought that was so funny too, because it's farthest from the eye. <laughs> like it's got the longest journey to make. You know, you'd think it would be right behind the eye. 
Yeah, there the it, the the evolution of that is is interesting, and there are there's a there's a logic to it. But you're right; it, mm. it, it, you would think it would be right there. Right. Um, but so you know, if you have damage to the back part of your brain, you can you can lose your vision because that's the part of the brain that's receiving those signals, right. and that part of the brain has a map of the visual world. So you can actually map out um, exactly which part of the visual world each neuron is getting information from called the receptive field of the neuron. And you can move around, you'll see this beautiful map of the external world that's just laid out on the back of the brain, like a perfect little map of the world. And similarly, those maps are so precise that with brain imaging now, we can look at the activity that's happening in those maps and tell a lot about what the person is, is seeing from their brain activity. Huh, now that's interesting because you might then be able to have a deeper understanding I mean, I imagine if neural, if if the neuroscience of that, and and say the op, an optometrist, I mean, we're looking at, you, know, you 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 could actually get what the person's really seeing, not just what they can tell you they're seeing, if that makes sense. Yeah, you want to do 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 a kind of a mind reading to get past if someone's lying to you about what they're seeing. A little bit, a um, little yeah, bit. Um, at, at some point, that's that's possible. I mean, we're certainly not there yet, but that's theoretically possible. Okay, interesting. So, okay, so we have a we have this homunculus thing that that homunculus homunculus. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, that's it, homunculus. So we've got this sort of part of the brain, which is the the touch part. We've got the sight back in the back, um, and we've got those mapped out. I'm imagining that that was probably the easiest to map out because it's the part that most directly and easily is comparable to how we experience the world as opposed like like we looked for it we expected to find it and we did find it versus the whole predictive coding thing which nobody particularly thought was coming and then you know or it had been theorized sort of but hadn't really been worked out or confirmed until fairly recently because it's so counterintuitive to how we think Right, and you know some of the some of the first and, and earliest knowledge that we have about the specialization of function in the in the brain comes from cases of brain damage. What happens when you uh, damage part of the brain? It's very very clear that when you damage the back part of the brain, that people lose their lose their vision. Mm -hmm. um, when you uh, damage the side of the temporal lobe, you can damage someone's hearing. We learn a lot from those cases. Um, some of the earliest cases that we learned from were not about um, vision or hearing, though. There were some, some more interesting things. So um, the history of, of this neuroscience is punctuated by a series of, of famous cases of, of brain damage that really advanced our knowledge just by seeing one person and, and how their brain behaved when it was damaged. Mm. And there are the few, few of these cases in, in the 1800s that were really interesting. And then actually we got more and more of them as we got into the 1900s and we started to um, fight world wars where we were shooting bullets um, and, and hitting people's heads, we got a lot more natural experiments uh, that way, unfortunately. But some, some of the interesting cases from the 1800s, there was you know this one case, the famous case of Phineas Gage. Have you ever heard of Phineas Gage? Oh, yes. I, I have, but please tell the story. I've, I think I've told it in the past, but let's go over this again because it's fascinating. Well, Phineas Gage was a, a railroad worker. You know, they would blast through rocks, and the way they did this was to uh, dig a hole and then to take uh, dynamite, you know, TNT, put it in the hole, and then he used this little rod to sort of tamp stuff in. And he was the victim of an accident where the rod exploded and was ejected as a projectile and literally went through his head. Yeah. So it went right through um, the 
very front part of his brain and landed some feet away and he was left with this hole in his head. And the really amazing thing is that his entire personality changed as a result of this accident. He just didn't seem like the same kind of a guy anymore to his friends. He, you know, before the accident, he was very um, uh, careful and planned everything and was a sort of, um, uh, was always socially appropriate. And after the accident, he seemed disinhibited and he was rude and he would swear a lot. And he would do lots of socially inappropriate things. So it's kind of like his entire personality changed. And a case like this is a really interesting clue to people trying to understand the relationship between thought and the brain, right? Because first of all, it's very clear that who you are and the, the decisions you make and why you are the way you are is dependent on this piece of flesh in your head. That's the first thing an experiment like this tells you, right? If you damage the brain, you can change who you are. Yeah, and this is not just a one-off with Phineas Gage either. This has happened over and over and over and over and over again. And then, of course, unfortunately, we have the period of lobotomies and stuff too. But all of it, definitely. There's there's way too many studies, cases of this to deny that you mess with this, you are literally messing with a person's personality. That's right. And probably the next uh, historically most important case was the case of Paul Broca's patient who had damage to the left side of his frontal lobe and had a language disturbance. So he wasn't able to speak anymore. So that told us a lot about parts of the brain that are important for speech and language. And you know that, that part of the brain now is named after Paul Broca. It's called Broca's area. And it's one of the parts of the brain that's really important for, for language. And so looking at all of these different cases and seeing how different functions can um, disappear or be um, affected when we damage different parts of the brain gave us this idea of localization of function, that there are different parts of the brain seem to support different cognitive functions, and maybe we can map those out to some degree. And it's fascinating how you uh, confirm then that this is the same from person to person to person. Those regions are always this, like the back of the brain's always where the visual cortex activity is being processed, always. It's just, that's just- Yeah, that's, that's like, right. It's not like With, there's a case where some guy, oh no, it's his amygdala doing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, on the although it's important to note there are variations in the precise locations and shapes of these things. I, I tend to think of it, um, I think a good analogy is faces. You know, everybody's got two eyes and a nose and a mouth. And they're generally in the same relations to each other. You know, the eyes are going to be above the nose. But there are subtle variations in how far apart each person's eye is or how big their nose is. And that's what makes them a unique individual. So we see those same kinds of variations in the folding patterns of the brain, for example. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Hey, everyone. I'm sure you'd agree that learning about different perspectives can help us make sense of the world as it changes every day, especially now. Our own views are often narrow and focused only on what we already know, and it's only through learning new things that we can more easily see situations from multiple points of view, something that's vital for good critical thinking. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects. You can gain valuable, reliable insights from some of the world's best teachers, and that's a service you definitely want to take advantage of. 
This is why I love The Great Courses Plus. It's a fantastic way to keep our minds active while staying close to home. Plus, you can stream it to your TV to watch as a family or just watch and listen on your phone or tablet using The Great Courses Plus app while out in the garden or taking a walk around the neighborhood. I've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus variety of classes on critical thinking and have also been checking out some of the courses offered now on infectious diseases and on media manipulation. These are vital to understand the world we live in right now and will broaden your perspective too. There's so much more to learn about the world, so start today by signing up for the Great Courses Plus. They're offering my listeners a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. Sign up today using my special URL to start your free trial, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Sign up today. Okay, cool. So the, so the sensory areas we've pretty much got mapped out. I mean, do we have that for sound and touch and taste? Like all of those are pretty figured out at this point. We know a lot about those uh, about those brain regions. Um, they're they're pretty fairly well mapped out. That's right. And there are a lot of uh, those brain systems. The other thing that makes them easy to study is that they have a lot of animal analogs that are very similar. So the way the visual cortex is organized in a monkey is very similar to the way that it is in a human, and that makes it a lot easier to study. Oh, sure. when you get to something. Like language, you don't have those animal models. It's, it's you have a lot of fewer avenues to to study and, and understand it. So that's another reason why some of these uh, uh, cognitive and psychological systems, the neuropsychological systems that we share with other animals, are are, are probably more uh, well understood. Okay, that makes complete sense. All right, so so sense perceptions are pretty nailed. Um, oh, so let me ask you. So then. Um, this concept of neuroplasticity, of, of change, that the brain can rewire itself or can change itself, does that apply to these areas as well? Like if you have, like, is it, it the, the phantom hand thing, I'm kind of wondering over time, does that really go away or is it just permanently soldered in there after a few years when it comes to those kind of things? There is plasticity to some degree in sensory cortices. So you can see in... Um, in the sensory maps that they their maps will change depending on loss of limbs so there are studies in monkeys where the monkey loses a finger or you know only uses two of its fingers you can see the areas devoted to those two fingers it's using will grow larger and smaller so there there is is definitely some plasticity in there the question is to what degree is it plastic? There's not unlimited plasticity, I, I don't think. Um, so, right. And plasticity also changes throughout the lifespan. So we, we tend to be more plastic when we're younger and less plastic when we're older. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense because learning sure as hell gets harder as you get older. That's, I mean, there's just not even any question in my mind about that. I used to suck up data way faster than I do now. Uh, can, you, can, I, can I be excused, sir? My brain's full, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, now, is it, is it, uh, do I have this understanding, right? It's just the sensory perception stuff made me think of this. If you could install an infrared eye into somebody, right? It may be at a young age even, and maybe it'd be better to do it then. And, and somehow, you know, solve the, the, the neuron, neuron problem. So you had it connected up to the brain in such a way that it could receive, you know, a, a, a steady, regular, understandable pattern from that input, could you theoretically have a brain develop to see infrared? 
or process that information yes, in yes. that were that like site. Right. So you're saying if you gave the brain a different source of information um, that it that it didn't have before, could yeah. it could it learn to process that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a really good question. Possibly. I mean, there are studies with um, you know uh, blind people that don't have input from the eyes are are able to learn to sense new things from from touch, and you can even uh, translate visual uh, stimuli into touch stimuli for them to understand. Um, so. Um, there's a lot of potential for that. And actually, I predict we will start seeing things like that in the next 20 or 30 years. Yes, I actually, I, I, I glanced at some studies on, on restoring sight with artificial eyes. And it got me thinking about that. Well, what about being able to perceive in other ranges outside of what our normal senses are? If it's just a pattern of neurons feeding into the brain, then why not? You know. That's right. As long as you translate that information out in the world into some sort of signal that the neurons can understand, whether it's an actual uh, train of action potentials or whether it's a, a sensory uh, modality that we already have access to, um, then, then the brain could learn to understand it. So as we start to get these um, cybernetic interfaces, um, there's no reason we can't give those abilities to them. It, well, exactly. One wonders... Um about the whole cyberpunk jacking into the system thing too, you know, I mean, it's going to plug in the back of your head or wherever it's going to end up going. Maybe it'll be right in front of the ear. Who knows where it's going to end up going. But um, theoretically, you could, you know, if you can figure out how to feed the signals in such a way that the brain goes, oh, okay, that's what this is. And here we go. Then theoretically, the sky's the limit as far as what it could potentially be receiving and then also outputting to. That's right. Yeah. And it's worth noting that we already sort of do that to some extent with, with our um, external devices that we have. You know, we're able to translate our thoughts into uh, visual signals, you know, letters and, and language. And then we use um, radio waves to transmit, the, transmit those to other people that can then decode them. So it happens outside of our body right now, but our brains have already found ways, <clears throat> new ways of sending signals long and receiving signals long distances. There's no reason that that process can't eventually be internalized by technology. Yeah, exactly. I, I and I mean, Elon Musk is on, a, is on a crash course for trying to make that happen very, very quickly. I, I think he's a mad scientist personally. I, I I don't really trust the guy, but I I admire the um, enthusiasm of his vision. <laughs> well said. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, well, now, sensory perceptions aside, like, okay, we've got those maps figured out, and like I said, probably the easiest to figure out because they directly translate to how we experience the world. Now, going to the next level down, how are we doing with mapping memory and learning? And, and I know these are whole episodes we'll do. I mean, memory, I'm keen to get into, but, um, but just on a regular, I'm talking in a more broad sense of, uh, how else do the neurons do what they're doing so that we experience the world through this, you know, consciousness lens that we have? Yeah. I mean, memory is um, another, we do know a lot about memory. We, learn, we know a lot about which brain structures are important for different kinds of memory. And one of the contributions that uh, I think neuroscience has provided is to show us that there are different kinds of memory and memory is not one thing. There are, there are different uh, systems in the brain that support different kinds of memories. Um, but, you know, as we go up from there um, to things like attention and um, 
decision-making and consciousness, it starts to get murkier and murkier and our understanding becomes more and more vague. We, we do these brain imaging studies and we can show that different brain regions are involved in different psychological tasks, but it becomes very difficult to map because um, we're, we're looking at very abstract uh, concepts and very abstract processes. And we may be looking at, at the wrong thing. So for example, <clears throat> um, for the last, uh, 20 years since brain imaging was uh, first invented, you know, people started to look at what's active versus not active in the brain. <clears throat> Excuse me, while we're doing different things. Um, but then we, we started to say, well, we started to see that um, maybe what's important for understanding how the brain works is not just looking at these individual brain regions and how they turn on and off, but how they work together and how they form networks and how they interact with each other. And there's been kind of this ebb and flow in neuroscience over the last 200 years um, between thinking of the brain as something that has these very highly specialized localized units that do their own thing and thinking of it as kind of a big mass that all works together. And that pendulum of localization of function versus one big mass has kind of flowed, swung back and forth a little bit. And I think we're in the process in neuroscience of seeing it swing back from thinking things are highly localized to thinking this is one this is a big network and really have to understand it at a sort of network dynamics level right i i glom onto that under level of understanding i i believe that that makes a lot more sense to me when i look at or think about how nature operates as a whole like how do organic processes work well they certainly work by using the same um well certain what brain regions i understand but just the body itself i mean if it can if it can have a piece or a part that can multitask, you know, or have multiple functions in the same organ, let's do it, right? Like not only is a hand good for grasping a thing, it's also good just for touching a thing. You know, it's like it, there's multi, it's the same part. So to say a hand only does grasping, well, it does, but it also does a whole nother thing. You know, and apparently, like, for example, um, the region of the brain that deals with or that it first evolved to measure smell, bad smells, toxic, poisonous things that you don't want to put in your mouth, um, that does double duty to serve the function of our emotion of revulsion or disgust. When it be, socially, when we experience social revulsion, it's the same part of the brain lighting up. Not necessarily like we've got that totally taped, but it's just interesting that the that part of the brain does double duty, you know. Yeah, there's a, a famous quote. I forget who the biologist was that said it, but that nature is a tinkerer, not an inventor. So if you if you have something that can be used for another purpose, you, the brain definitely goes ahead and uses it for whatever new purpose it is, rather than reinventing a whole new system. So yes, it, it definitely makes sense that it, that it would have evolved that way. Yeah, exactly. And yet there's probably other parts also involved in that. Like there must be some, there must be an on-off switch somewhere, or some kind of switching mechanism somewhere in place or the equivalent that produces this function of like, for example, this part of the brain that, that measures uh, physical revulsion turned into social revulsion. Well, there must be some switch over there that says, okay, now we're operating physically, now we're operating socially, you know? But so when it lights up, this time it's it's a physical revulsion, but when up oh, switch, oh socially, get away from me, I don't like you. You know, totally different manifestation in the real world, but same part of the brain being utilized to produce that manifestation. 
Right, and so that's why we it's important for us to look at the interaction between brain regions so we can see, for example, a brain region like that. The insular cortex, that is important for feelings of disgust, how it interacts with different brain regions um, might be different depending on the context and whether it's being used for real disgust or social disgust. And so understanding that network structure is important. Yeah, exactly. I also understand from having read a bit about brain anatomy that you can have from one person to the next to the next you might have different systems doing um, in 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 bill, let's say, you know, network one. I mean, I'm just being so reductionist right now. Uh, one part of the brain is is operating or lights up when he experiences, you know, I don't know, orgasmic pleasure or something, you know. And but over in Sally, it's this other part of the brain that's lighting up for her when she experiences what she translates to the same words that Bill uses for what they're experiencing. So you also get a kind of a, um, a multiplicity of regions can produce the same effect. That yeah, that's part of the, part of, yeah, that's probably what makes it so difficult to understand is that everyone is so unique, right? right. We all have our, our own associations with these things. And maybe when Mary sees it, she thinks about something that happened to her in third grade, and then all of the stuff that's associated with that comes up. And when Bill sees it, it's just pure pleasure. So, you know, combining across people is difficult when everybody's different. And one of the things we try to do is to um, look, sometimes we look specifically at, at how people are different and how that relates to what's happening in their brain, but it's, it's extremely complicated. Yeah, um, it seems can we tell? Can we tell the story of, of the uh, split brain? Oh, absolutely. familiar with the split brain? Absolutely, yes. Let's please get into that. because The split brain is interesting because cool. it drives home this, this um, principle of the brain as, an, as a network and the integration of different brain regions as important for the construction of our self and our conscious experience. And this is one of the first things that I studied in my scientific career. So <clears throat> the split brain is a case where um, the two hemispheres of the brain, you have the left and right side of the brain that are like, look um, more or less identical. If you just look at them vaguely, there are, there are some subtle differences, but they're, they're basically the same. Um, and there's this big bundle of fibers of white matter called the corpus callosum that connects the left and right side. And there are a few cases back in the 1950s of uh, neurosurgeries where these fibers were physically cut as a treatment for epilepsy. So the person was having severe seizures where the seizures were going on all day long and they're the kind of seizures that kind of spread from one part of the brain to the next. And so the theory was that if you cut these fibers, you'll stop the seizures from spreading and from uh, the synergy from happening. And these are the days before we had really good drugs for epilepsy. So these were very effective surgeries. But they left the person in a situation where the two sides of their brain were essentially independent networks. It's kind of like taking this big network and separating it into two smaller networks. And you could demonstrate all of these really interesting effects. You know, most of the time, the split brain patient would look like a normal person. Because and, and isn't that all by itself fascinating? That it is fascinating. That's the thing in half. So they're not connected. And, and you could have a total conversation with this person and have no idea you, which side of the brain you're even talking to. But the fact that he can, that this, that this person can still function with this thing cut in half, it is amazing to me that that alone is a piece of true information. 
That's it is amazing. I mean, I, I, I met several of these patients and they were, um, I mean, well, you know, they did have some impairments due to the fact that they had this epilepsy that their whole lives. Um, but essentially, yes, you could have a conversation with them. And you would, you wouldn't necessarily know if you didn't, if you didn't already know, yeah. but there were some ways <laughs> that you could demonstrate that there was something really interesting going on, yeah. something really unusual going on. Um, first of all, each hemisphere, you know, we talked about those maps in the visual cortex. Well, each hemisphere now has one half of the map. Oh, right. Uh, right. Right? Yes. And they're not so talking the, to each other. They're, they're not talking to each other. Exactly. They can't share their, their pieces of the map. So the left hemisphere sees the right half of whatever it is that you're looking at. And the right hemisphere sees the other half of what you're looking at. And if they can't communicate via the corpus callosum, they're stuck with, with a picture of, of half the world. Now, most of the time, this is compensated for by the fact that you can move your eyes around, right? You can mm -hmm. look around the room and, and your, your left hemisphere can get the other half just by shifting its gaze. Um, but when we asked them to look straight ahead, we could then flash things on a screen and show pictures to one hemisphere or the other. And that way we could test, you know, what does this hemisphere know about the world? How is this hemisphere thinking? And how is it responding? You could demonstrate some really interesting disconnects in their consciousness. So, for example, the left hemisphere is very verbal, and um, that Broca's area that we discussed earlier tends to be on the left side. The production of speech is something that's very specialized to the left side, and the right side can't really speak. It can understand language, but it can't speak. So when we flash an image to the right side of the screen, so the left hemisphere can see it, let's say it's a picture of a car, and you, you ask the person, what did you see? They'll say, I saw a car because the left hemisphere can see the car and left hemisphere can talk. But if you flash that same picture to the left side of the screen, it's now seen by the right hemisphere and you ask them what they saw, they'll say, I didn't see anything because it's really the left hemisphere that you're talking to and the left hemisphere didn't see anything. And it's this disconnecting consciousness. You can then ask them to use their left hand to draw what they saw. The left hand is controlled by the right hemisphere. And so they'll draw on a piece of paper exactly what the right hemisphere saw. And so it's really like there's two minds inside one head. It's really amazing. was mind boggling to me when I first read about this. I, I read about it in Incognito, the Eagleman's book, right? And I just about fell out of my chair. I could not believe how fascinating this was that you could consult the right brain and get answers by having it write them down because you could not speak, because it couldn't see, couldn't speak. Yeah. And yet you it's, could- It's conscious oh, in there. Yeah, you, there's consciousness. It's got, it knows what it saw, right. but it just can't tell you. <laughs> Isn't that, and we're so used to this being the organ of communication that if you can't say it, well, how could it possibly be that you're thinking it? But there you go. You know? Right. And, and I think the other thing that it reveals, we're also used to thinking of ourselves as a unitary thing, right? We have this experience that we are, there's one sort of subjective center of consciousness. And that subjective center really is an illusion that comes from the interaction of lots of different brain regions. And if you separate those brain regions, you now have sort of like two centers of consciousness, right? Because there's two separate pools of, of information. And so this network structure of the brain and the sharing of information across all these different brain regions is crucial to the sense of integrated consciousness that we have. And the split brain case really shows that that can be separated 
and that you know in some in some senses we we really are a whole bunch of different processes we're a collective of different processes um, that somehow integrate to give us a sense of a coherent self some of the time yeah it's kind of it's fascinating the questions that are raised from this are still not answered but they are really interesting questions for example you split the brain you cut you know you cut the corpus callosum were there always two personalities talking to each other and fighting or did that cause a split in the personality not schizophrenia but just two personalities now form we don't know the answer to that question yet but it's a fascinating question because that could change everything in terms of how we view the brain if it's an adversarial left versus right in some fashion wow that's a different look at at what's going on up there versus it's a solid organ that you know works in a unified way well, once you split it, it's not that way. They start kind of working against each other in a certain way. I mean, if I understand what I was reading right, um, you you know, one side of the brain might actually start working against the other side. Like, I don't want it, you know, like you ask the left side, what do you want to do with your life? I want to be a lawyer. And you ask the right side, and it's like, I want to be a baker. Or I want to kill the other side. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Like, what? Uh, I, I am, yeah. It, it, it um, you know, I, I think it was. It's, it's more rare than the stories would have you believe that yeah. that you'd see those adversarial relationships. Most of the time, um, they behaved in a coordinated fashion, which is interesting wow. in and of itself, right? I mean, I think the truth is is probably somewhere in between the two extremes of what you just laid out there. Okay. Did we, did we, did these things appear because these two separate. Uh, consciousnesses appear because of the cut or were they always there they were probably to some extent always there but they were um you know maybe more coordinated right. before than they than they are once once they're separated um there are there are definitely cases of uh, there are other cases of brain damage where you can see these kind of conflicting intentions come out there's the case of alien hand for example yeah. um, which is that's what i really a, a damage to the premotor cortex and the person's hand will start behaving in a way that doesn't seem to accord with what they say their intentions are. And that's a very, a very bizarre situation that, again, shows you the breakdown of the self in a lot of ways, that the self, that the, um, you know, the, the unitary nature of the self is something of an illusion. Um, and that, that can be revealed by these different cases of brain damage where you see a breakdown. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I I don't even know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I, if it does, I just can't wait to hear the explanations for how all that stuff breaks down because it's going to be a doozy, man. It is. I, I the split brain stuff is the most fascinating. It's the thing that really intrigued me to get deep into this stuff in the first place because I thought, oh, there are answers in here. If we can figure out this, we're going to have some real answers to to what's going on with us. Um, yeah. So, okay. So split brain is a thing. What else do split brain patients teach us? Um, I mean, they taught us a lot about the differences between the left and the right hemisphere, you know, because of this setup, we could, we could test, you know, what is the left hemisphere able to do on its own? And what is the right hemisphere able to do on its own? And this gave rise to this whole popular notion of the left brain versus the right brain, where the left is sort of more analytical and and computational on the right was sort of more uh, holistic and, and creative and there there's a germ of truth in that it's one of these ideas that made its way into the popular culture and probably expanded beyond what the what the science was supporting 
Um, and it's oh, that's something new and different that never happens every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, we did learn a lot about specialization of function. As I said, with language, it really is speech that's that's most localized of the left hemisphere. We 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 um, were able to determine that the right hemisphere can understand a lot of a lot of language. It's not as good as understanding language as the left hemisphere. And there are some things that the right hemisphere is better at than, than the left that do have to do with global processing. Um, I did my dissertation on the difference between the, my PhD dissertation on the difference between the left and right hemispheres in terms of their self-monitoring capabilities. We found some differences in the way that they had self-awareness. Um, so I, I think the split brain uh, situation taught us a lot. It generated a lot of interest in neuroscience, which was also great. Got people like me into it. Um, it's not a surgery that's done anymore for a, a lot of reasons. It turns out you don't have to cut the whole corpus callosum to get the effect. And now we have these new drugs that are effective as well. And many of the original uh, split brain patients have passed away already. Um, so um, we, we, uh, we, we learn about hemispheric specialization probably more now from brain imaging than, than any other tool. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's settle a couple of questions then that people might have out there when we start talking about brain regions and figuring out what's doing what. Is there a is there anything yet that would be approximate to a seat of consciousness? We don't think there's one location in the brain that is a seat of consciousness. And that idea has been pretty much you know you could trace that idea back to Descartes. Descartes thought that the pineal gland was the seat of consciousness and formed the connection between the brain and, and some um, non-material mind. Um, but no, there doesn't seem to be one particular locus of consciousness. Now, again, when you talk about consciousness, you have to be very clear about what you mean. So there are parts of the brain that control the, the cycle of wakefulness and sleep, for example. And that's one sense of the word consciousness is, are we sleeping or are we awake? And there are particular nuclei in the deep in the brainstem that, that control that process that you know, um, um, make us feel sleepy and want to go to sleep or revive us from, from, from deep sleep. And those are important uh, brain regions for the sort of cycle of, of wakefulness and, and sleep. But if you talk about the where is the seat of the contents of consciousness when we're awake? There is no one particular brain region that, that corresponds to that. Right. There are theories about how the activity of the brain gives rise to consciousness, about how certain brain regions might be more important than others, or the interaction of certain brain regions might be more important than others. There are other theories that um, posit that certain kinds of information flow in the brain, certain kinds of information integration are important for consciousness. But we're at, at the stage where we have a whole lot of theories, not a lot of ways of testing these theories. Um, yeah, that's and, the tough part. And, yeah, and no good answers. Yeah, exactly. Um, what about um, emotions? Now, I, I'm just talking anatomy right now. I'm pretty sure we're probably going to end up doing a whole podcast in the future on the subject of emotion, because I really want to dive into that one deep so we, we clear up some things for people. But is there like an emotional center? I mean, there's this, you know, there was this idea that the amygdala is the fear center, but then it comes out, well, actually, no, it's probably more processing novelty. And when new things are happening, that's why it's lighting up. And just so happens we're scared of what things when we when we first see them most of the time. So that's why it looks like it's fear. Um, I don't know. Is there, are there other, are, are there any other areas that are like, figured out besides the sense regions, I guess is what I'm trying to figure out is what do we know for sure, person to person to person, that's, that's what's going on there. And, and we no question about it. 
We, we know certain brain regions are very important for emotion. Um, the amygdala is one of them. It's obviously very important. There are certain brain stem nuclei that get information from the body and integrate the, start to integrate the feelings that we have in our body. Your emotion is really tied to the body and what's going on in the body. And um, some of the systems that monitor the internal state of the body that involve, for example, the insula is another area that we've, that we've mentioned before with respect to disgust. So some of the systems that monitor the internal state of the body are, are very important for this. The amygdala is important. But emotion in humans is a process that's so integrated with co cognition um, that it's, um, it's hard to point to one particular brain region. I mean, these, these signals are there from these brain regions we've talked about. But then there's a whole process of construction and elaboration and interpretation of these systems that really give us the richness and texture of our emotional experiences as we interpret why we're feeling the way that we do and try to figure out what it means to us. That all of these systems for meaning in the brain are important too. So it's a multi-leveled process that involves different levels of the brain and elaboration as you sort of move up the chain. Interesting, okay. So, it's a, so in other words, it's not so simple as here's the microchip that deals with emotion. <laughs> Plug it in, pull it out. Not, it's not really like that. It's more of a systemic issue because you need all these parts working together, at least so far as we understand it. That's a very good description. Yes. Great. Okay. Cool. I like to be on top of these things. I'm glad, I'm glad when I'm when I'm tracking. Well, your T-shirt right now says "Stupidity Together We Can Find the Cure." So, I feel like you and I are working together for the cure here. Exactly. Um, okay. Cool. So then. What can you tell us then from, you know, because you because you are all about this, about cognition, about thinking. Um, what can you tell us that we know, I guess, anatomically, because we're pretty much focused here on anatomy right now for this for this podcast and 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 what the neurons are doing within that anatomy. So what can you tell us about what we know about these cognitive processes and what the neurons are doing to create these thoughts? that we, or whatever we experience as, as thoughts. Well, they're doing something. <laughs> yeah, exactly, what? <laughs> what are they doing? What, what are they doing in there? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we know a lot, we know that we know that the activity of the neurons um, directly corresponds to our thought. And the way we think of it in, in cognitive neuroscience is that there are two sides of the same coin, thinking and the activity of the neurons. What, what exactly is the relationship between the two of them? Um, some people will tell you that in some sense they're identical, that the activity of the neurons is completely identical with, with thought itself. And that sort of gets us into the realm of, of philosophy of mind a little bit. Um, mm, good. So for example, yeah. if you, we talked a little bit about visual cortex and you know, the visual experience of an apple, does it correspond exactly to a certain pattern of firing in the visual cortex? You activate the neurons that detect the shape of an apple. You activate the neurons that detect the color red. You know, there are specific color processing regions in the visual cortex. And somehow the activity of the neurons that recognizes all of these different shapes corresponds exactly to the experience of an apple. On the other hand, maybe there's something else that has to happen beyond the visual cortex in order for us to experience the apple. Maybe we need to connect it with our linguistic concept of, of an apple, and that involves systems in the temporal lobes and then the frontal lobes. And then maybe we need to have a meta-awareness of the fact that we're thinking about an apple, and that involves regions of the prefrontal cortex. So you can see how complicated it gets when you start to 
analyze what it really means to think. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thinking is is a is a is a term that is very useful in our conversation and in, in language, but it's it's less useful in the science of of cognition because it doesn't correspond to one particular thing. So we in cognitive science try to be more precise about what particular process we're talking about. Are we talking about language? Are we talking about attention? Are we talking about decision-making or memory or mental imagery? All of these different things are processes that make up what we collectively call thinking, uh, but each of them probably has a different neural substrate. Right, exactly. It's a collection of activities that we experience as a single activity. We may or may not experience them as single activities. Sometimes a lot of these things, like with thinking or with the self, upon uh, sort of first pass analysis, maybe they seem like one thing. But if you spend any real time looking into them or introspecting on them, they, these things quickly give way um, and very easily seem like illusions. You know, if, if you, uh, this is something that the uh, Buddhist uh, practices discovered millennia ago. But if you spend time introspecting on your thought and on yourself, you can see that there is no ghost in the machine. You know, you can pull the curtain back a little bit and there's no wizard there uh, pulling the strings. If you start to think about your own experience and where it comes from and what the different parts of it are, it very rapidly kind of falls apart in your hands um, and, uh, and disappears. Yeah, like water, just out of you know, where, where to go, where to go, <laughs> right? Yeah, through your fingertips there, exactly. It's and and I think that's the the race to mindfulness that everybody's kind of you know thinking is a really good idea, and in some ways it is. Um, and it's interesting. It's, it's very very interesting. Okay, so so basically, you know how we think might itself not really end up being the right question to ask. I think that's right. I think we have to get more, you know, one of the things that we do in the process of science is to get more specific about our questions. And we, when we, when we um, first have a question, it's driven by some kind of curiosity, but with a little bit of analysis, sometimes the questions themselves turn out not to be the right questions and we just have to get more specific about them. Yeah, exactly. And we also have this concept or this idea that, you know, just because something's happening in the brain doesn't mean we're aware of it. I mean, there's definitely not. Yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> probably the overwhelming majority of stuff that's going on in the brain is stuff we're never going to have any experience of awareness. And you can uh, you can realize that with just a little bit of introspection. Like if you're listening to this podcast right now, and the sound waves uh, from your audio device are hitting your ear and creating neural patterns in the neurons in your ear that are transmitting them to your temporal cortex, and somehow that stream of sound is being dissected into the different phonological units that make up language. And then those things are pieced together into words and the syntactic structure of the sentence is analyzed to give you some kind of a sense of what it is that I'm saying right now. And you have no awareness of any of that. You just hear the words and you understand them. You're like the endpoint of this whole process here is your conscious experience. It's, it's very far down the road of all the things your brain is doing. I, I, and I just think that's amazing. I, I, I think it's almost, if, if there was any thing in the world that I was going to use the word miraculous to describe, right now it's the human brain. Because it's just 
the most complicated, amazing machine that we know about. Yeah, and and we barely and understand it. <laughs> that's right. The, the fact that this um, biological structure, this basically this mass of meat and fluid and blood and electrical signals firing off uh, results in the subjective experience of consciousness and of everything that is within the human experience. Everything that ever every human has ever experienced in the history of the world is the result of this piece of flesh doing whatever that it does. It's totally amazing. Yeah, it really is. Uh, okay, well, this was, this was good. I think we did a pretty good survey here of some things and established what we do and don't know in terms of brain regions, in terms of sense perceptions. And that's a lot. I mean, I, I say we hardly know anything, but you know, hey, we, we know some things and we know them really yeah. well. And that's good. We got a base to start with, you know. Um, let me just ask you this and then and then we'll wrap up. How do you approach, you know, if if how do we think as we've kind of come full circle here, realizing that's not really the question to ask, now that we've kind of got to that, um, how do you, you specifically with the research you do and the work you do, how do you approach? this and what what are you trying to figure out in your work i think you have to break off a piece of the problem and you you know as a scientist it's just impossible to answer the whole question so you have to find which little part of this can i practically study in my lifetime <laughs> and, and do something with and so you have to break off a piece of the apple and study you know just the stem for example so for me um the the parts of this that i find most fascinating are the parts about self and consciousness and where our ideas of uh, who we are and what we are come from. And so those are the processes that I've tried to study first um, by looking at the split brain and then using neuroimaging to look at uh, you know, what's happening when people think about themselves versus other people. And what's, what, what's happening when people process their own beliefs or their own story about, about themselves. You know, I've become very interested in story because story is one of the um, primary ways that the brain organizes information about the world and about ourselves. I mean, we have this autobiography of who we are. You were a Scientologist and then you got out, you got this whole story that you're very good at telling on your podcast. Right. And that whole process of organizing information in that way is, is very central to our experience of ourselves. And so that's, that's one of the things that I'm focused on studying now. Interesting. So am I am I making a leap of logic and and wondering whether those whether our life stories or the stories that we tell ourselves the way we experience life or remember life could have maps the same way that perception maps exist? Yes, I, I think they're not as clear as perception maps. We've done some actual mapping of these things, so we have people read stories. Um, and then we look at the brain activity maps that uh, result when they read different story and using a machine learning process, we have machines try to learn the patterns of brain activity. Um, we are able to um, determine from their brain activity pattern, which of the stories they're reading. And the amazing thing is that we did this in different languages. We had people read the same stories in English or Chinese or Farsi. And the maps are similar enough that what we learn from looking at one language can tell us what story the person's reading in the other language. Really? I would not have, I was gonna ask about cultural differences and, langu and language differences, of course. I was wondering if they were, if, if a person in India raised, in, you know, an Indian native would literally think differently than a 
you know, and a, a person raised in the United States. And it, well, it, there, you kind of see it both ways. So it kind of, it's kind of interesting. How would this work out? That's right. There are, there are definitely differences. So, you know, in the Chinese, they're, they're reading the, they're processing the language very differently because it's pictographic and, um, the, the whole structure of the syntax is different. And so the parts of the brain that are processing that level of meaning in the story look very different for someone reading it in Chinese versus in English. But there are other parts of the brain that seem to respond to the meaning, the deep meaning of the story that's the same, whether you grew up in China or, or in America. Fascinating. That's fascinating. I always, I always look, look out for that because um, sociological studies are almost exclusively, unfortunately, concentrated on white Anglo-Saxon people in the, in, at Yale and Harvard. Right. <laughs> so almost all the sociological studies that have been done over the last many decades are really good at mapping white people. You know? That's right. And I don't even say that in some kind of like, you know, weird way. I just say it's, it's funny. That it's like well, we actually we call it. There's an acronym now for what we they call it weird samples, yes, and it stands for I forget exactly what it stands for now, but W is white. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like white English uh, educated. Edu yeah, white educated. Um, was it industrial or something? Maybe yeah, something there was like something that. in there about education and about socioeconomic status or something because they're talking about kids at Harvard or kids at Yale. Right. Stuff, you know. That's right. Um, but this brain stuff, I mean, the universality of this would demand that you have scanning done all over the world in order to, to nail what we're looking at. Yeah, I mean, we did it in L.A. and just we were lucky that we have a very diverse population here. and We were able to find people who grew up in those countries and then had recently come here to L.A. So that's right. how we were able to do it. Practically, it's very difficult to, you know run the same experiment around the world, especially with brain imaging. Yeah, exactly. Plus, you don't know if the language is going to be a variable or even where they're at is going to be a variable. Yeah. Wow. Difficult topic. Well, fascinating stuff. I, I can't stop saying that word because it is just fascinating to me. Um, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Always, always great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. I, I, I'm enjoying the hell out of this. Um, yeah, we'll get together again soon because I want to. I, I think we're. I think we want to dive into memory next. I think. I think that's where I want to. I want to go next, and then we'll do emotion. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think this is going to be <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Cool, man. Um, thank you very much again, and I will um, leave your contact data uh, in the show notes below. Uh, in the description. sounds good. People want to reach out to you. They can email you. Um, folks out there. Any questions, comments, or feedback, leave it in the comment section on my channel or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I would love to see and hear your responses and feedback on all of this and any information you might have to contribute to the conversation uh, or questions you might have as well, of course, for future episodes too. I'm kind of curious what you guys are curious about on this topic. So leave that down there as well. And if you find this show educational, informative, and maybe mildly entertaining, then consider supporting me through Patreon because that's how I keep the show going. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.